The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by John McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. Yeah, we're also delighted to be in the studio. No Seb today, no remote Seb as, as a result of the technical issues that we had last week. But if anything, it's a blessing because in Seb's place, it's Liam Toomey of The Athletic. Hi, Liam. Hello. How Trying- are you doing? All right. Trying to enjoy a rare hour's respite from news, hopefully. Sure. We'll see. Well, you know, if, if any news happens, you've got your phone. It's fine. In fact, it might cause a nice dramatic effect if you were to walk out halfway through. <laughs> pretend you're speaking to uh, Graham Potter's agent or something. That would be a very exciting exclusive for the TIFO Football Podcast. We're not used to them here. But if you like exclusives, that was good. You should get The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for all the world's exclusives. What's the best exclusive you've ever had at The Athletic, Liam? Oh, blimey. Mm. (laughs) On the spot immediately. Um, I'm going to lean into type. Um, We do a bit on our podcast where I'm supposed to be a massive fan of Kai Havertz. I'm going to say... Doing an interview with Kai Havertz, breaking down aspects of his game nice. using Y Scout. Nice. Was, was he nice guy? Yeah, was he like? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a very normal guy. Uh, it was via Zoom though, unfortunately, yeah. during COVID. But um, yeah, he was very good. I read he loves birds, the animal. He loves a lot of animals. Does he? Yeah, he's um, he's got dogs. He's got his own dogs. Like right. Me. Yeah. Um, and uh, any other similarities between you and Kai? <laughs> both left-footed. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah he's sure. a bit taller than me, but um, a little bit. Other than that, both you, good in tight spaces. Sure. You're sure. unsure of your position on a football field, your best position on a football field. Yeah, but everyone's sure they have to have me out there. <laughs> they just don't know where. <laughs> um, yeah, he loves um, horses, I think, as well. Right. Yeah. Well, who doesn't love horses? Anyone here? I'm not, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of horses, but I'm not an enemy of the horse either. Horse agnostic. Mm, yeah, I think so. Well, well you know yeah. they exist, but... Yeah. John McKenzie, not an enemy of the horse. <laughs> but if you want to read high-quality football writing, then you should visit The Athletic. Please do that. Please, please, please do that. <laughs> uh, I will leave you now on the warm hands and the cool embrace of the dog-owning Liam Toomey. Right, let's begin, shall we, with Graham Potter, because, of course, uh, since we spoke last, Thomas Tuchel has lost his job at Chelsea. We'll come on to talk about him a little bit later. Uh, Graham Potter was very swiftly anointed the new Chelsea manager, Liam, almost as though there had been plans before <laughs> Tuchel had lost his job. Almost. Almost. Yeah. We, we weren't aware of them, obviously, before news of Tuchel sacking broke, but uh, in the course of making calls and putting together our big long read on Tuchel sacking, it became quite clear to us that the wheels had been in motion with Potter for a few weeks mm. and that when Chelsea were looking at Mark Kukurea from Brighton and Todd Bowley flew to Mykonos um, to put the finishing touches to that deal, he displayed a startling <laughs> degree of knowledge of all things Graham Potter, yeah. his entire career from Ersterson's onwards. Um and to be fair to Todd Bowley, maybe he just has an encyclopedic knowledge of all football. Maybe it's possible. Maybe. It's possible. Apart um, from formations, right? Well, <laughs> not the best. At some formations. people we've spoken to would contest the uh, encyclopedic knowledge of football view of Todd Bowley, but um, <laughs> I think it's true that the the owners have certainly 
gained a lot of football knowledge this summer. I think it's been a steep learning curve for them at times. Um, and they haven't been viewed favorably by everyone. Mm. But uh, but no, they, they latched on to Potter early as someone that could be a good fit for what they're building at Chelsea. And it got to the stage where when they decided that they wanted Tuchel out, Potter wasn't just a candidate. He was the clear first choice. And then Maurizio Pochettino was mentioned and they did contact him um, as the sort of highest profile free agent out there, maybe with Zinedine Zidane as well. But Potter ticked most of the boxes for what they wanted. And uh, and that in itself, I think, is quite interesting because, you know, there's been this desire in some quarters to paint Chelsea's new owners as like the, the typical splashy new owner mm. coming in, spending a quarter of a billion on players in their first window. But normally those types of owners go for a name, don't they? They go for someone who's got a long history of trophies. They go for Jose Mourinho, let's, yeah. let's face it. Well, it sounded um, like they tried to go for Cristiano Ronaldo as a player. So you, yeah. would, you would think, therefore, that they would do the same for coach. Yeah, and that's true. There was certainly, at the very least, a high degree of intrigue over the possibility of signing Ronaldo. And that was a point of tension with Tuchel. You know, you can talk about how compatible that is with going after Potter. But the fact that they thought Potter was the one for them, I think, it's quite interesting and suggests they're at least sincere in their desire to try and build something long term. Mm. Whether they're actually going the right way about it is another question. So I think there's there's probably, it's fair to say, a split of opinion amongst uh, Chelsea supporters about Tuchel's sacking. We can chat about that in a little bit. But what's the reception to Potter been like so far? Because presumably, you know, out of a complicated situation, you would have thought most supporters are fairly happy about that. I think Chelsea fans have had a lot of practice at this okay. <laughs> with head coaches changing often when they don't want them to. So while there's a lot of sadness and a lot of disappointment um, from a number of fans about Tuchel going, particularly in such brutal fashion, mm. I think the desire at the very least is to get behind Potter and to show him support early because they recognise that this could take a little bit of time. Mm. And with the amount of new players they've signed and the fact that this squad is clearly changing significantly this could end up becoming a sort of transition season yeah the owners want it to be a transition season which ends in a top four finish but it could well be a a, a bit more of a transition season so the fans i think are broadly on side there are obviously questions about the fact that tuchel has uh, the fact that potter hasn't operated at this level before mm. and you're and you're succeeding a champions league winning coach but the atmosphere in, inside the stadium will be positive against Salzburg. feels like a bit of a tidal change for Chelsea, doesn't it, John? I know, I mean, obviously, new owners have come in. And uh, as Liam said a moment ago, there were a certain set of expectations about what, what would follow. Uh, but the Chelsea that I know are, are a club that often go for big players, go for big name managers, try to make a, a statement, you know, in many cases prior to Tuchel, try to allow the players to, to sort of find the, or figure out the solutions to on-pitch problems themselves. Chelsea signing Graham Potter is not really something I'd ever considered before. It feels like similar to what PSG are claiming to be doing at the moment and have done over the summer by signing a lower profile manager and talking more about team play than individuals. Yeah, I agree. But actually, I do think that people downplay the similarities between Tuchel and Potter insofar right. as um, I think they're both very similar in terms of the way they approach football and I did the, a, a video last week looking at Graham Potter and what he brings and a lot of what he does is I think to, I like to call it problem solving so each phase of play he, he's going to say right we've got to we've got to move the ball from deep possession 
through the thirds, get it to the final third and then, and then generate chances. And I think he views each of those phases as a problem to be solved and has the ability to be flexible to change things around even within games to, to be able to achieve that kind of thing. And I think Thomas Tuchel is, is very similar in that respect. I think he's a really elite coach when it comes to moving the ball through the thirds and both Brighton under Potter and Chelsea under Tuchel have had issues maybe generating the most dangerous chances they can in the final third, which is a different question to be asked. But in many respects, I think the ability to be flexible is quite unique for someone like Thomas Tuchel, but being an elite manager at that level, I don't think many managers would want to be as reactive almost as he may be. I think Potter is more reactive and that's probably because he's at a club where yeah. you know you have to be reactive because you are going to be a lot of the time playing against teams that are better than you but the idea of being a, a, a flexible manager at an elite side is I guess a little bit counterintuitive because I think a lot of people expect big managers to just come out and, and say we have this squad at our disposal we have to be proactive we have to go out there we have to make the most of this of, of the squad that we have um, whereas obviously Thomas Tuchel came in and was just very defensive from the start and I think at the beginning of, of, of Tuchel's career everyone was saying you know he's sorting out the defence and then he'll sort out the attack and that, I, I guess you could question whether or not the, the attack ever yeah. got sorted out but um, I think that's quite different to the way that a lot of a lot of other managers would, would do it maybe we're seeing that a little bit with Eric Ten Hag but um, I think that he's he's in a weird situation where he has to sort of work yeah. with a squad that isn't as good whereas I think you know Potter goes into the Chelsea job with the, with a squad which is just so deep compared to what he's had before um, yeah. and so I think he'll just be able to come in play the same sort of system I think he'll stick with a back three system he plays a this sort of 3-4-3 three, three with a box in midfield that, that Tuchel has played and so I, I think that I don't think it's going to be a particularly steep learning curve for him. I think that he'll just come in and they'll do what they've done before. I mean, the, the changes, though, are what you've highlighted already, that with Brighton, obviously, as a result of sure. the quality of players he has, he does need to be reactive and build his game plan around what uh, sometimes better opposition are going mm. to do. At Chelsea, he doesn't need to do that. You would have thought, aside from the tactics, that's quite a significant change for a manager, I don't know about Urst I mean, Urstersen's one of the best teams in the league. Is he, does he have experience of, of managing the team who who are supposed to dominate? I mean, the they ball? certainly were by the end. He right. took them over in the fourth tier uh, yes. and took them all the way up to the top. And and obviously they had that famous victory against Arsenal in the I guess it was the Europa League uh, back yeah. then. Um, but they were underdogs, right? In, in that game, I mean, yeah. In the, but their identity, if they, if they, sure. you know, I, I don't disagree with you on that. What I would disagree with you maybe is is that that Tuchel's. I think the I haven't best said thing, anything. You can't disagree with me. <laughs> I, I, just to be clear, my, my base level question, is that you're wrong. I won't have you so disagree. We'll with start me. from that base level. Okay. So you're wrong, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think with 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 Tuchel, he like the best things that he did at Chelsea in a in a tactical sense were always reactive stopping op opponents from doing things so he had he absolutely had the number of Antonio Conte on most of the games they played switched up the system played a, a four triple two where it was all about stopping Conte's team being able to do the build-ups that we know that they can do they mm. try and lure people in they they do this really nice passing through the through the first third and then you get the ball into your front three and, and they're just elite at that and Thomas Tuchel knew exactly how to stop that and a cup manager yeah, yeah, you, you could call him that, where where he's going to re respond to opponents and he he's going to um, he's going to cause them problems. And I think in the champ the last edition of the Champions League, they obviously had that terrible game against Real Madrid, but then mm. in the second leg of that fixture, actually were very unlucky not to to actually see the result through as well. So 
I think there's a lot of similarities between between Potter and and Tuchel, and I think that the reason why people think that Tuchel is an is an elite manager is because he's managed elite clubs. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference between him him and Potter necessarily. Yeah. Well, another aspect of having a new coach, Liam, is their ability to to attract players or improve players that are already there. And Jeff Reuter for the Athletic in the US wrote a piece saying that maybe he thinks Christian Pulisic might be a player who could benefit from from Potter being there. Do you think there are players in the squad that are maybe missing out at the moment or have, you know, higher ceilings and room for improvement that Potter Potter can assist with before we talk about who else he could bring in? Yeah, I think virtually all the attacking players from yeah. start, you know, that was the big failure of the Tuchel tenure, really. He made Chelsea arguably the best defensive team in the world for the first calendar year he was in charge. The last nine, ten months, that fell off. And they didn't have the margin for that to fall off because the attack never improved to a level, certainly to the level of Liverpool or Manchester City, where they mm. could seriously challenge in the Premier League. So I think when you're looking at individual players that can be improved, all of the attacking players, more can be done to maximise them, whether that's a change of system, whether that's slight tweaks of role or or starting positions on the pitch, mm. mate, that'll be something that Potter has to assess. And the good thing is, with the sort of fixture uncertainty in the next couple of weeks around this Salzburg game, he maybe has more time than he initially thought to work on the training pitch and start putting some things in in place because there will be no room to breathe in October, November. Chelsea just have to recover and prepare for the next game. But that was a big bone of contention between Tuchel and the new owners by the end was that I think part of the analysis the, the owners did was not just the what they saw as the declining trends in his second 50 games versus his first, but also the fact that players were not improving, whether they be young players. And the perception there was that Tuchel didn't particularly trust young players anyway, but even the older players were not improving and not playing at their maximum level. And that will be a key part of Potter's job going forward. One thing Tuchel does have over Graham Potter is like more of a reputation internationally. And Mm. I think... It's sometimes it's sort of frustrating for us here at TIFO. The way we like to think about football is, oh, if this player does really well in this particular position and his data shows that, he should be given an opportunity within this team. But more often than not, what happens is, you know, players either choose teams as a result of uh, the reputation of the team or in some cases the reputation of the manager. And sometimes players don't want to go and play for a team that's coached by a manager that they haven't heard of before. And with Graham Potter, whilst he obviously like it has a fantastic reputation in the Premier League now, um, is it at all going to harm their ability to to sign players that Tuchel maybe would have been able to draw? It's an interesting question because I remember a little while ago we were working on a piece about what's it like to play for Tuchel and we'd done similar pieces on Guardiola and Klopp and with those pieces it was very easy to find player voices, players that were happy to talk about their experiences with Klopp and Guardiola it wasn't with Tuchel he's Mm. not someone who has that same level of rapport with most of the players that he coaches and maybe that's part of what limits his shelf life at clubs in the end and I think an extension of that is that this is also something Chelsea experienced in in the summer is that he isn't necessarily one of those coaches you look at who can draw players to them maybe that worked with Aubameyang to an extent although there were there were other forces that Mm. kind of made it make sense for all parties. And but I think look- when you've when you've coached a player before, that almost doesn't count, does it? That's like, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously it's an indication that they like you and they like how you coach, but really what I mean is being able to draw a player who's yeah. aware of your reputation. And when you're talking about people like Matthijs De Ligt, 
that didn't work. Yeah. He he was swayed by Bayern Munich. You talk about someone like Rafinha, obviously his his dream was to play for Barcelona. It would have been hard for Chelsea to overcome that regardless. Mm. But I think in, in both cases, fair or otherwise, I think the view from ownership was that Tuchel was not necessarily as compelling in his role of persuading those players as he perhaps could have been, mm. certainly as Xavi was at Barcelona, for example, and some other, and we've seen Klopp and Guardiola do that in the past. So I'm not actually sure that when we're talking about Potter, the drop-off in that aspect will be particularly, particularly noticeable because I, I don't think Tuchel was regarded as a major sort of player draw. I think when, when players sign for Chelsea, usually they're signing for Chelsea for the money, for the yeah. prestige, for London, for you know, the chance to compete for the biggest trophies. Yeah. Okay, uh, John, a tiny bit more on, on Graham Potter and his tactical approach. He appears to love flexible players. Are there any, is there anyone at Chelsea or in the squad or players that, that stand out that will be of particular use to Tuchel, do you think? Right. Tuchel, Potter, <laughs> oh, they're the same person, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Tuchel's been quite flexible with some of the players, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so so someone like Reese James, you can play as a, as a wing back, or you can play him as on the outside of a, of a centre back. And we saw, yep. we seen The Tuchel best player in the squad, you mean, Reese James? Is that, sure. can we say that now? Reese James, best player in the I wrote now? quite recently, he's the most complete footballer in the squad, and mm. I think that's pretty solid at this stage. Well, as I've already said, my position is that you're wrong. So <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. What a shame but, that's extended to Liam as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to... Just collateral, yeah. aren't I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Caught in the crossfire. But we've seen him use uh, Loftus-Cheek as a, as a wing-back as well. Yeah. Um, in quite an interesting way in that it allowed... So people will all say, why play Reese James as an outside centre-back? You're losing something doing that. But it does allow you to push, push Loftus-Cheek inverted in into that front line and gives you space then for, for James to run into as mm. well. So I think that the part and parcel of being a good, flexible manager is that your players have different roles in different situations and they know what they're doing. That's what we've seen Potter do at Brighton. We've seen him use Alexis McAllister just all over the pitch and he's been used as a, as a pivot player mm. in a deep-lying sense this season, which we haven't really seen much before that. And yeah, Leandro Trossard was brought in as a sort of classic winger, and, and we thought that we'd see him a lot on, on the outside of a front three. We've seen him play as a wing-back as well for, for Brighton on bo both sides at times as well. So I think that, again, it's just it's just quite a nice crossover. I think that the, the when you get someone like Tuchel, you get someone like Potter, they, these players are getting a footballing education. It's not just sort of like, oh, you are this player in this position this is what you do mm. the idea is that, that in certain games they'll be being told this is what your role is these in, in this phase of play do this in this phase of play yeah. do that and again i just think that's quite a nice cross it's it's weird because it's like so much of what we've heard about the bowley what do we call it era regime take over that's too hard yeah too hard the regime the regime <laughs> that is too hard the rain the rain of todd bowley yeah. <laughs> long may he reign over us but, yeah um, of course I think we we've talked we've talked already about um, hello uh, yeah we've talked to, we've talked already about how I can't completely forgot what I was going to say I don't know what you uh, we've really talked already about how Todd Bowley like we expected him to do like American owner things right mm. which is you know do things like bring in Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo but it does strike me that eat a mac and cheese <laughs> yes that famous American activity but I actually think that this is quite a sense. It's like it it, it it makes so much sense to me as a as a sort of succession, reign of yeah. succession. So yeah, okay. Liam David Ornstein reports this morning in a fantastic column 
on the Athletic. And Golo Kante, at the moment, not signing a new contract. He's got one year left on his deal. I mean, I think a bit of a waning influence anyway, right? I know it sounds horrible to say anything bad about Golo Kante because I feel like everyone loves him. But I think it is clear that with his current injury record and with uh, you know potentially uh, his, his age and the amount that he's presumably had to run over the last six, seven, eight years, he appears to be a waning influence on the team. Is this kind of the perfect scenario? Do you, I mean, do, do you really want to sign N'Golo Kante down to another three or four year contract? I don't think it's a straightforward decision for the owners because they've already shown in the case of Kaladu Koulibaly and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang that they are, and of course Azpilicueta keeping him, that they are prepared to go beyond the one year policy that the, the old Chelsea ownership had for players over the age of 30 if that player is deemed to be A, useful on the pitch, yeah. but also useful off the pitch in terms of okay. culture, dressing room harmony, everything like that, leadership. And Kante kind of ticks, the, uh, he's obviously not the most vocal presence, but he is a very good veteran in that sense, in that he's he sets an exep- exceptional example day to day. And even on the pitch, it's kind of a bit of a dilemma still, because when he plays... As you saw against Tottenham, which was pretty much the only good performance Chelsea have had this season under Tuchel, he's phenomenal still. He he can still absolutely own a game, but it just doesn't happen as often. Last year, he played 50-60% of the matches across all competitions, and the last couple of years, it's, it's been that way. It feels like injuries have been a much more persistent part of his story ever since the Europa League final in 2019. In terms of the wages that he's on, can I get a sense of like how highly paid he is within the realms of the, the dressing room? He, he's an upper earner, right? So until Romelu Lukaku signed, he was the highest earner at Chelsea. Was he really? In the region of £290,000 a week. So this contract that they're offering him, can we assume that it is either for the same amount of money or less? Because I'm not sure. We don't I'm know. Not sure. But... And I think that's another interesting aspect of the discussion because... According to David's information, Chelsea have offered a two plus one, similar mm-hmm. to the deal they offered Aubameyang with, I presume, performance incentives or maybe appearance incentives in that second year to trigger the third. Yeah. Kante wants three years guaranteed, which I guess from his perspective, looking at what he's done for the club, eh, but also looking at the contracts given to Koulibaly, he, he and uh, Azpilicueta would say, well, look, you are showing a bit more leeway now, but there could be a little bit of a back and forth there in terms of, well, if you want the guaranteed third year, then can you come down on salary? Because mm. Chelsea would maybe be more prepared to do that. I, this is just me surmising, but I think it would be less of a load on the wage bill, which is what the owners are thinking about now. Yeah, To bring him back for three guaranteed years on the money he's on at this point in time doesn't seem particularly no. feasible to Even me. if he is a legend. Yeah, and, you co- and I think while they are paying for culture and sort of less tangible things they're not paying for sentimentality mm. so that that's not going to be the starting point of any of yeah. these conversations americans hate sentimentality <laughs> don't they liam i've always part of the culture <laughs> they're so keen to just let go of the past well they're just relentlessly business-minded i think the, yeah. the new owners and that's a, another thing that i think people it's been easy to overlook because they've been throwing money around in the transfer market and 200 million pound net spend. This is not going to be the way things are going forward once yeah. there's a sporting director and a sporting structure in. Is that tricky for Potter? Because, <laughs> I mean, they have just spent quarter of a billion pounds. And I know we're only a couple of months away from January. The, a very easy argument to make to Graham Potter that uh, you've got all the players here that you need. And I would have thought one of the, you know, part of the interview process would have been 
do you think you can work with the squad that we have? And I imagine Graham Potter would have said yes. But, you know, we've seen a lot recently of managers buying players from clubs that they've previously managed. Do you think there's a chance at all that Potter might be looking back to Brighton in January to pick someone up? I don't know. What well, do he think? sent Kukurea on ahead, didn't he? There you uh, go. So yeah. he's already got one. The scouting um, party returned successful. I would be surprised if that happened. Mm. I think if Chelsea went in for any Brighton players, then it would have to be a decision based on that player's merits. But yeah. I'm, the conversation had with Potter would have been, you're a head coach, can you coach this group of players? And when they're talking about this group of players, they're not just talking about the senior squad, they're also talking about like Carney Chukwamika, yeah. Cesare Cassidy, these, these young players that they've spent a lot of money to bring in. Mm. It was made very clear when Chuck Wamika signed that he wasn't going into the development squad, although he has played for them a couple of times. He was training with the first team. It's mm. with a view to him trying to earn first team minutes. So I think that's one example of something that Potter will have to look as yeah. look at as an option. Because remember after the Southampton defeat, Tuchel turning around saying, we've got no one left to play in central midfield. And he'd left, he'd left Billy Gilmore and Chuck Wamika yeah. unused among his substitutes. Well, on Billy Gilmore as well, he's obviously gone to Brighton fairly recently. Can we take that as an indication that Graham Potter doesn't want to use him at Chelsea? <laughs> if the conversations have been going on for a month or so, we can't take that as a... I mean, it's quite a funny idea though, isn't it, Liam? What do you think? My understanding is that I think um, in the conversations that Gilmore had and that Gilmore's people had with Chelsea before going to Brighton, it was sort of intimated that, look, stick around, see what happens. The situation could change. Yeah. <laughs> Were they winking, really? <laughs> <laughs> but obviously at that at that point, things had reached a stage with Gilmore. He'd been cut from the pre-season squad. He'd yeah. lost his squad number. He'd already spent a less than satisfying year on loan at Norwich. He wanted some stability, but he also wanted somewhere that would guarantee his career moving on an mm. upward trajectory again. And so I think he signed for Brighton. Yeah, Potter was a significant part of that because everything Potter's done with the team and the chance to work with him, but I don't think it was all of it. Okay. The sense I've got since, the feeling is you can't hang around in the hope that a manager will get sacked. I know players have done that at Chelsea in the past and it's paid off, but they made a decision for his career. And I think if you're looking at the long-term strategy of Brighton beyond Potter... We're going to talk about that later, aren't we? Mm. Whoever they appoint in place of him is going to try and fit that same vision for developing young players and, and yeah. running sustainably. So that should still fit what Gilmore is looking for. Look at that. A professional podcaster over there. A trail ahead. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. Pod yeah. shadowing. Steve Hankey's very proud Thank of you. you. Yeah. Uh, listen, let's have a break now. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about Thomas Tuchel. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This almost looks like Graham Potter's new desk at Cobham. Did you see that? On no. The, his first interview video. It's just all very minimalist. There's just like a stapler in the corner by the window. <laughs> just nothing else. Was that Thomas's staple? Did you say, please? <laughs> yeah, he's left it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was seemed to be playing a dangerously high line towards the window. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that was what Tuchel was. His oh, last that was message. Uh, podcast gold. Shame it was in the break. Anyway. <laughs> 
Thomas Tuchel, uh, if you hadn't worked out already, has left uh, Chelsea. We've talked a little bit, Liam, about, about what happened, but just give us give us a pricey of because uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, and it was a surprise to me as well, only in terms of the timing. I mean, based on the things we'd heard in the summer, little rumblings here and there that mm. things weren't great between him and the owners, and we'd been hearing for longer than that back to January of this year some of which we'd reported about player discontent, particularly among the attackers, about the way Tuchel was managing them. So it wasn't a a shock, but it was a surprise that it was happening so early in the season and mm. five days after the close of a transfer yeah. window in which you he guys, had been quite active. Yeah, I mean, the, well, that's one thing. But also you wrote, I think, uh, that um, Tuchel also sort of believed that in principle they'd agreed an, another deal. So it must have come as a bit of a surprise to him. Yeah, he was um, absolutely shocked. I mean, right. when we rewind to that Dynamo game, you know, the the big piece that we did starts with them getting onto the plane from Zagreb back to England, and the owners are on the front of the plane, Egbali and Boli, with Tuchel and his coaching staff, and there's nothing being said there. It's completely oh, silent God. the front of the plane, but he doesn't know at that point. He doesn't know until the next morning when he gets a summons to a conference call. You know, very quickly, um, summarily, politely, let go. That. Yeah, we want to go in a different direction. And That's think, awkward for everyone, isn't it? On the plane. I mean, also because <laughs> it's the right thing to do, presumably as a person, not to sack someone on a plane uh, where they can't, <laughs> where they can't leave, and and then also, but if you've know you've made the decision, I mean, it, feel, it will feel like an emotional betrayal. But also, Snake, it, it happens on a plane, to be maybe the right thing work, to do. To Snakes on a plane. When it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just the plane. When they landed, they landed at South End, so they had a ninety-minute drive oh, on the God. bus, where the, the same scene plays out twice, where mm. they're on the they're on the plane on the bus, and the players just have to awkwardly file through. Sure. We've all been in a relationship like that, though, haven't we? Yeah, we've had right. to do an awkward mm. train journey or a yep. bus. Journey. I'm just waiting to dispatch my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Another ten years, I think, Summarily. before I work up the courage summarily uh, will you do a conference call for that one <laughs> probably yeah. yeah i'll involve you john you've been you know you're a model employee here i'm sure it'll work out just, just speaking fine. of me being a model employee someone reminded mm. me the other day that on a very early edition of this podcast mm. i say very early in my era sure. in the john mckenzie era extremely recent. i pointed out that um thomas tuckle might be one of the first managers to go this season did you yeah okay just write that in your book of model employees just well there's no need because you've said it on a podcast now haven't okay, you, you a little, a little moment of uh, I was right is, I, I was right this, yeah. I said this a while ago is, is prophecy an essential quality yeah. of a model employee <laughs> if anything it's discouraged because <laughs> it's quite smarmy isn't it and uh, we don't like it here Sorry. yeah not, uh, are there non, any other not for profit organisation <laughs> are there any other nice details juicy morsels Liam I mean on the sort of player management side of things you hear things before the decision, but then you hear a lot more after the decision. And in the course of the conversations we were having with people, we heard quite a few things that were quite damning and sort of pushed Tuchel's authority over the dressing room beyond the point of no return. One mm. of which was during pre-season, he had two separate player meetings, one for players that were happy to stay and fight for the club and one for players who are either uncertain about their futures or who wanted to leave. Wow. So that immediately divides the dressing room. But yeah. then you get to the opening weekend against Everton and some of the players who'd wanted to leave are in the squad and some of the players who'd wanted to stay are not. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one person we were talking to described that to me as, 
you know, once you do something like that, you can't really come back from it from a dressing room perspective. So how did he not know? I mean, like we said, he was really surprised to be fired. Maybe that's right, but he must have known that he that he was losing the dressing room. If if by the sounds of it, lots of players had lost confidence in him. I think he knew that there. Well, I think he knew going into the summer there was a lot of discontent in the dressing room, which yeah. is why he was pushing for so many new signings. Right. Um, because Chelsea went into the the summer with five of their seven attackers, everyone bar Mount and Havertz, really actively wanting to leave. Yeah. And of course, there was essential surgery needed in other areas of the squad as well. So Tuchel had an inkling, certainly in some cases, a lot more than an inkling about players really not getting on with him and wanting out. Mm. But I think a new season starts and you just hope it will something will happen that turns things around. And, yeah. and you hope that you've changed enough players where you can change the mood and, and build a new group. But at the same time, I think a lot of players felt that Tuchel had changed over the course of his tenure as well. When he first came in, he was this really positive force um, day to day. You know, there was that, I mean, it is the classic sort of honeymoon period when a, when a coach comes in, he was replacing a manager who'd ended up dividing the dressing room mm. um, towards the end. And he brought everyone together, clean slate. Everyone felt that they had an opportunity, that the training was fresh. You know, everyone was invested. And then over time that gets harder to maintain. And if you if you make mistakes from a man management perspective, if you're harsh with players, that can feed into a broader mood. And I think by the end, things were similar <laughs> to the way they were at the end of Lampard's time. Yeah. And so Potter now is in the position that Tuchel was in back then of trying to bring everyone together, assure them they're all starting from from a level playing field again. Yeah. And the challenge will be maintaining that. It's quite interesting, isn't it, like to think about um football managers getting fired because they get fired so often that you would have thought they're quite used to it and not afraid of it in the way that, you know, you you guys and me might be. Uh, I'm terrified. That's why I keep well, bringing up my sure. perfect record. As and an I employee. do. I do would have preferred to keep that level of uh, okay, anticipation. Yeah. Well, and, but, a, and um, a multi-million pound payoff is not yeah. the worst safety net, is it? So the, I this think, is the thing. Wait, we have I, a multi-million pound <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to start arguing I'm a terrible employee. <laughs> it's simply not worth it. <laughs> Yeah, I, think I, I, I always, I'm always very careful. I mean, again, I get a lot of practice about talking about managerial sackings and mm. appointments covering Chelsea, but I'm, I'm always very mindful of the fact that we have to keep this conversation in perspective yeah. because the stakes are not that high here. You no. know, it's it's a professional blow. There are some serious, e there's some serious ego bruising, but Thomas Tuchel will be okay. Well, then also, know. like, I can't remember where I heard this. It was on, on another podcast. It might have been the the Stadio podcast with R Ryan and Musa. Somewhere, anyway, maybe I falsely attributed that. We're saying uh, being sacked from Chelsea is not really a career blow. Like it happens to loads stage. of managers, yeah. and there's loads of examples of managers being sacked from Chelsea that then go on to have arguably better jobs elsewhere. With Tuchel specifically, you think if he's been sacked a few times already, you get quite used to it. You might as well, if the owners are going to spend loads of money, you might as well try and buy five or six, seven players and, and change the dressing room. Why not go out on a bang? Because it doesn't really seem to make any difference with the exception of maybe harming your future job well, Roberto Di Matteo won the Champions League with Chelsea didn't he sure. and I couldn't name his job right now no that's true he, he but he was a uh, temporary manager wasn't he <laughs> yeah. he was the uh, was he or did they yeah, give he, 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 he got it permanently but not for long did they, he get it permanently after they won yeah, yeah. it always felt like that was Abramovich's most reluctant yes. appointment that yeah. he was it was kind of the almost fan thing. it was one of the few times Abramovich 
bowed to fan pressure, I think, to yeah. give him the job. Okay. But uh, the one way you could say that this might affect Tuchel's future employment prospects is just that it's another club that has ended with him falling out with the people above him. And, you know, there's a really good piece on The Athletic from Rafa Honigstein talking more about Tuchel's past. And that was a, a big factor at Dortmund. It was a big factor again at PSG. And with mm. each of these individual clubs, there's there's plenty of mitigation. You can explain it away. But when it happens again and again, mm. and you're the constant, a then, pattern you see. then owners of other elite European clubs are going to start looking at it and thinking. I think this actually happened with Antonio Conte mm. as well you can get a reputation from be, for being very difficult to manage. Yeah. A high maintenance coach. You hear that, John? <laughs> Sounds like he needs a master's in emotional intelligence or something, doesn't he? Well, <laughs> it does sound like that. Steve Hanke, you've put a lovely little fact here in the, uh, in the podcast plan. Yeah, so we're talking about Roberto Di Matteo, last job that he had after winning the Champions League, then getting sacked. Obviously went to West Brom afterwards. That didn't go well. His last job was Aston Villa when they were in the Championship under Dr. Tony Chi. Yes, of Do you course. remember that era? Yeah. That lasted four months and he hasn't, had a managerial job since. Well, some exceptions to the rule weren't there. But speaking of Tuchel and his next uh, job, uh, John, we had a chat about this the other day. They did talk about this on, on the Stadio podcast, which I encourage people to go and listen to, by the way, a lovely football podcast. They suggested Juventus, which is quite, it's quite a nice suggestion, isn't it? It sort of feels fitting. And because at the, at the minute as well, Max Allegri, not really doing that well. Yeah, I mean, there's lots to talk about here, isn't there? Mm. I think there's even before we get to two of the things you mentioned there, I think just the context of who elite managers manage now has changed so much in five, even five years that it's kind of interesting to think about the level of of job that, that Tuchel would agree to. And mm. one of the things we've seen in the transfer market for players is play, uh, clubs in the Premier League being, being able to have a much bigger pull on players than than even elite teams around Europe. Mm. So I, I wonder whether or not the same thing will be true in terms of managers. I think maybe slightly different with managers. But how um, how are you defining elite managers? This is a question that I was hoping that you wouldn't ask. Oh, <laughs> well, you can blame Steve Hankey because he wrote it in the podcast plan <laughs> and then Steve, highlighted he's it. He's trying to undermine me. See, and then started That's what's breathing deeply here. behind me as if to say, <laughs> "Say it, Joe. Read what I've written. Be my puppet." Elite manager for me nowadays is one of two things, right? One of them is going to be a manager who can who can get the most out of a squad of really elite players. Mm -hmm. Please don't ask me to define elite players. <laughs> <laughs> you are creating more questions am, with I your am. answer, though, aren't you? But then I think what the expectation has generally been in, in the last... <laughs> Steve has written, please define elite players. <laughs> you just carry on. Ignore I'm him. Ignoring. He's, <laughs> he's creating I need chaos to just have your week, confidence. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, yeah. Just, just tell him... <laughs> I wouldn't ever do that. Or swear, because then he has to <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, just throw in, create extra swear, work for him. Later. Swear every minute. Yeah, yeah. Just, do it. Um, Don't do that. The, the other group of managers, I think, is and the expectation has been in over the last decade. I think the elite manager has to be able to have plans for for each phase of, of the game. They have to be able to. Their teams have to be able to press well. They have to be able to build up well, etc. They have to just be good across the board. Mm. You would think that Tuchel would go to a big job like a, a Juventus, but I, I suppose the the question is like, what level of Premier League team would Tuchel accept? Like, yeah. would he accept the the next level down? I don't know. Like, I mean, even maybe a, a job like the Arsenal job, like, would would that be the sort of job that that he would take? I think that's surely, an interesting yes. conversation. If Mikel Arteta wasn't there, surely he would accept and ask the Arsenal yeah, job. I, I I suspect so. Yeah. What do you yeah, think, like, Liam? Well, what's quite interesting in this is that we've heard before that, that Tuchel has previously considered whether he might be better served working 
one level down from the, the huh. kind of elite European super clubs where you'd have a dressing room. How do you of, define elite? <laughs> <laughs> no, carry on, please. <laughs> where you have a dressing room of players who maybe aren't quite the same profile, but they're more malleable to your methods mm. and they're more willing to accept your methods for a long period of time. It's so interesting with like Potter as well, right? Because it feels like he's making the opposite move, yeah. right? He's going from that kind of club to mm. to the elite level, so... Yeah. They said, I know. I imagine Atletico Madrid would count in the elite, but Stadio suggested Atletico as well, which is quite interesting. They, they, I mean, in terms of character, that all sort of seems to fit, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I thought like I, I thought Juventus actually yeah. clicked when you said it because I think they're in a similar kind of situation, maybe not quite as extreme as they were when they appointed Conte, where. They went. They kind of. They've been full circle, haven't they? Yeah. They got to a point where it wasn't enough to win. They had to win a certain way, mm. and now they just want to win again because yeah. they haven't won in a while. And I think if you're in that frame of mind, a coach like Tuchel, who's just going to elevate you tactically back to the the very top level, yeah, um, they want the I Champions League, a, don't they? Good choice, right. yeah. So, yeah. and we've already said that Tuchel is maybe a bit more of a cup manager. We've already seen that he can win the Champions League and get his teams to the final. He's done it with two teams now. So that's what that's what Juventus originally wanted when they got mm. rid of Max Allegri, right? Because yes. Max Allegri and Conte were not winning the Champions League for no. them, and um, they then went through that phase of you know sort of being a little bit more experimental. But it does make like Tuchel does make a certain amount of sense. It's also not that difficult to imagine Max Allegri uh, leaving at some point this year. And of course, speaking of Juventus, something very strange happened over the weekend, John, with a a goal that was disallowed by our, a header scored by Arcadius Milik who then proceeded to take his shirt off in celebration, had already been booked, had a second yellow card, and was red-carded before the goal was disallowed. Yeah. And then I think I, I, several other players were also red-carded. <laughs> and, and Allegri himself. And Allegri himself. Uh, what the hell happened? The, the funniest thing is is that they, actually it came out that they, they VAR... So the, the, the goal yeah. gets overturned, yeah. um, which is the cause of all of these red cards. Because one Be player appeared to be uh, interfering, interfering offside. Yeah. But there's an argument as to whether So you can argue about was. that, like whether or not he was interfering with play. But yeah. he was onside anyway, because Kandreva... Um. Was was marking the corner like on the on the on the line, and the and so when the ball comes in, like yeah, um, Benucci's just about fifty centimeters onside, like clearly onside. Right. The VAR just haven't clocked that he's there because he's sort of close to the corner taker, oh dear. Uh, and they did apparently didn't have the correct angle, the VAR, to be able to. How does the VAR <laughs> not have the correct angle? So in in some, it was quite funny. So Juventus were two 0 down. They pull back to or should have won three two. Right. But actually, didn't end up winning because VAR messed it up, right. and um, I, I could have sworn then, and I didn't. You're, <laughs> you're so lucky. Did, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's a sort of weird situation now because Allegri started off badly this season, and this is sure. this is a kind of weird result where obviously they've dropped points against a team that they shouldn't be dropping points against, but yes, they've they got have. a good excuse for that not happening. So it's sort of a little bit of a twilight game in terms of the people who want Allegri in and the people who want Allegri out. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, well, that's funny. Go and watch that if you have time. <laughs> uh, we'll come back after a break and talk about Brighton. Ah, Brighton. The place, the, the nice place. Graham Potter's left there now. And, of course, they'll be looking for new managers, John. Andy Pe uh, Andy, Andy Peeler. Not Andy Peeler. I thought you were going to say Andy Peters. Andy Peters. <laughs> He's the new manager. Andy Peters. No, Andy Peeler of The Athletic. Andy Naylor, of course, I'm referring to. What uh, is Andy the, Peters the, doing these days? I don't know who Andy Peters is. I was just uh, trying to presenter. join in the riff. Live and kicking back in yeah. the day. Alive and he's, kicking. He's had a very Roberto yeah. Di Matteo sort of would, career. Would right? he make a good Brighton manager? It's possible. Know. 
Andy Peters, let's look. Do you not remember Andy Peters? Is it before... No. Oh, that's depressing. Maybe it's before, before my time. time. Certain, Andy with a Y. Uh, with an Andy I. with an I. Yeah, I recognise Andy Peters. I recognise Certainly him. an elite Saturday morning. <laughs> and is there anything more, really, the to being level, Brighton manager? Yeah. Who could say? The, uh, the squad's so good, it manages itself. But Andy Naylor doesn't think so. Andy <laughs> Naylor of The Athletic, who's written a piece uh, about this, if you, if you want to whet your appetite with that. But, John, there's a few different names circling the... Not the, the, the drain of Brighton, no, no. The circling the, the, the golden trophy... <laughs> Of Brighton. Who are they? Who's circling? Who are the Jeez. names? Seagulls. That would have been a nice metaphor. Oh, God, that would have been good, wouldn't it? Yeah. And you could have even just gone into the following Eric the trawler yeah, exactly. of, uh, of, uh, of Brighton, Brighton, the managerial job. Who, who are these people so that you can pronounce the first name and not me? Uh, yeah. I, I asked my Norwegian friend how you pronounce this and he didn't get back to me. So right. Thanks, Mads. Mm. <laughs> I'm saying Chettel Knutsen because I've heard people say that before. Okay. Um, he's the, the, the current- KJ. Yeah, I, I don't know how you say it, but what whatever. Like Bodo Glimt manager. Yeah, Bodo Glimt. The, the team I heard, heard uh, oft mentioned recently. Why why is that? Are they good? They they've been pretty good in European competitions. So they had that famous, I think, a six nil win over Jose Mourinho's Roma. Oh yes, um, that the was them. Group stages. Yes, yeah, so that was them, and they're playing like a super fun brand of football. Mm-hmm. Um, high pressing super pose- uh, positional stuff so like they're in this- arsenal's europa league group this year i believe yes yeah um and so they're they're sort of playing like attractive football tm so <laughs> right um he's he's obviously he's obviously um on people's radars because yeah. of this okay um it does seem as though brighton have sort of gone through the list of like who are the up-and-coming managers around europe um so sure. knutson should definitely be on that list and i think that I've, it would just be fun like any of these managers would be fun and postacoglu was mentioned as well very similar to Shettle Knutson as well. So sure. high pressing, high intensity, lots of positions. Ange Postacoglu, I can say recently, by the way, I've realised is the uh, the middle of your Venn diagram with JJ uh, because JJ is Scottish, and so therefore, and uh, you uh, just like uh, possession football, and so therefore, and there in the middle, Ange Postacoglu, Celtic manager. <laughs> You're saying is, that my Venn diagram is possession yeah, football, and his is Scottish, JJ's yeah. Scottish, and they just manage yeah. to. and it gives yeah. you this blind spot about how popular Celtic really are. Anyway, uh, just in terms of making YouTube videos for a wider audience, not within Scotland. Don't worry, Scotland. It's all fine. Roberto Di Zerbi is the next one. Another another fun manager. Yeah. Uh, Slightly different to to the other two we just mentioned, but again, another manager who has really interesting ideas in possession. How so different? So I would say that Di Zerbi is probably closer to someone like Antonio Conte in that he likes to have his team do really deep build-up and bait oppositions in to generate space right. um, ahead of them. Um, but it does it to like an incredible degree. So you'll see mm. like you'll see you, you'll see like eight players for his teams in the penalty area in build up sort mm. of really baiting the opposition in. And then in terms of like forward areas like quite a few interesting ideas. So again he's a possession manager, but usually when we talk about possession managers they usually want to create space when they have the ball. But um I, I think Deserbi is doing interesting things in terms of like possession but with narrowness mm-hmm. so that you can then spring counter attack counter pressures pressures because that's the big debate in in terms of like if you're going to play counter pressing football if you're if you're a possession side you want to win the ball back quickly so that you don't get counted on yes but you also want to get space and he sort of developed this hybrid idea of of being able to be narrower in possession so do a lot of sort of rondo work so again it's similar stuff to what we're seeing deep 
in deep possession, like really intricate passing plays to get the ball through yeah. uh, as well. So yeah, I think, again, he would. Uh, it, it's funny for me to, to sort of talk about this because these are managers that I would just love to see in the Premier League. Whether or not I would love to see them as a, as a fan of that team, I yeah. don't know. But I think these are all super exciting managers who it would be great to have in the Premier League. Liam, if you were to pick a manager for Brighton, and it need not be one of these uh, types, who would you pick? I mean, I think someone like Thomas Frank was was linked from mm-hmm. Brentford and that feels like it would be a good fit. Probably one of the more expensive choices, I would imagine, yeah. because you're signing him from the less established Brighton. The other one, yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. Uh, and, and Brentford are, are certainly no mugs, so I, I doubt they would let him go cheaply. But he does seem like, in terms of his way of working, pragmatic but but very sort of sophisticated view of football and setting mm-hmm. up teams um, that he would fit with the culture there. Whoever comes in will have to bring a fairly extensive coaching team, won't they? Because yeah. Potter has taken pretty much everything by the furniture with him to, yeah. to Chelsea. And the staplers. Yeah. <laughs> I would choose Ian Everett of Bolton, yeah? Because A, I'm a cool guy. <laughs> and B, I spoke to him once. And uh, he seemed very intelligent to me. He, re- he really did. It doesn't take that much to impress me, but um, he seemed uh, he seemed like a good one. He was the one, uh, if you're a, a subscriber to The Athletic, go back and find the Barrow-Salona piece that Stuart James wrote a couple of years ago that was very interesting when he was at AFC Barrow, non-league team, and I managed to get them playing like Barcelona, you got that, didn't you? You got that. Yeah. AFC Barrow. AFC Barrow. Who would you pick there, John? I mean, any of those. Any of those. Three that we mentioned. <laughs> yeah. I think Thomas Frank's a good chat as well. I wouldn't pick yeah. Ian ever. Right. Because <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. That's good to know. Fine. Okay. Uh, well, finally then, before we finish, uh, a, a question from Jack Elderton. Yeah, and John, I asked you beforehand if you thought this was interesting, and you said yes. So I'm going to ask you the question. I didn't see this question. Could you guys right cover <laughs> what David Moyes is doing at West Ham, playing a hybrid system between a back four and a back five? The left centre back becomes a left back. The left wing back becomes a left winger or left central midfielder. The way it's being implemented, uh, high press versus first phase, low block versus everything else, is kind of cool. And you can see how Paqueta could explode in this system, John. Uh, yeah, I've not thought about this at all until this very moment. But mm. it's, it's what we're seeing. Fresh thoughts here from the top of Mackenzie's head. <laughs> and go. Just, I'm really, really going to have to impress you here. Now, yeah. aren't I? So yeah. I'm feeling the pressure. Good, good, good. This good. is something that we're seeing a lot happening now in, in Premier League football. So the ability to shift between, between systems. The interesting thing about David Moyes, I suspect, in the last few seasons has been that his team, obviously, like really well-structured defensively and they've, they've struggled to be a team that are expected to win more. So they're, I think they're pretty good at playing underdog football, so playing solid defence, but then having the ability to have players like Jared Bowen, uh, Mikhail Antonio, Saeed Benrahma, players like that who are going to be hit on the break quickly. And it's, you know a lot of teams are happy to come out against West Ham so West Ham can cause some problems. But obviously when you do that to a certain amount of a certain amount of times teams lower mm. down the table suddenly say well what's the point of trying to come out against West Ham yeah um let's just sit deep against them and then you you're in this situation where you have to um you have to a very boring them. game of football sometimes yes yeah um and so what we're seeing i think more of now is teams thinking of ways to to just manipulate their structure so that they can they can push players forward in certain attacking phases so yeah you're playing with a back 5 but you can also 
form a situational back four. Mm. Um, it allows you to get an extra player forward because if you're playing with a back five, you're obviously taking a player from the forward line and, and bring them out. So you see a lot of managers now using creative ways of trying to get that player that they've taken out of further up the pitch mm-hmm. into into forward play so yeah I don't think Moyes is particularly unique in doing this but he, he's one of those managers right who I think he benefited a lot from the pandemic in that his team were playing quite structured football not too energetic football so that um it didn't matter because so, a lot of the teams who were playing like really intense presses mm. were, were struggling but so I also would like to say before I watched the Arsenal all or nothing series I had no idea the extent to which footballers were using the energy of the crowd to mm. further them on yeah. through uh, holding light bulbs and such. So, yeah. So I think that they, they definitely benefited from that. And, and then the big question became once they'd moved up that level to being like a mid-table side to like mid-table side, you should be pressing for Europe, mm. whether or not they had the in-possession stuff to, to do it. And so um, like, I'm sure this is part of that. But Okay. One more question uh, from Scene here. Scene asks, uh, would love to hear you all talk about Ivan Tony and the uh, potential for him to be in England's World Cup squad alongside Tammy Abraham and Harry Kane. I'm throwing that at you, Liam. Yeah, he's had an excellent start to the season, hasn't he? And yeah. he seems to do the little things, the less glamorous things that focal point number nines increasingly don't do. I mean, the last one at Chelsea that really fit that pattern was Olivier Giroud. Mm. But he's also got the goals. And if he can carry on scoring at the rate at which he started the season, maybe he's on a little bit of a hot streak. But if he can get to at least 15 goals and really facilitate a very successful Brentford attack, mm. he's got a strong a strong case, I think, because he's the kind of... That kind of striker is a player that you can build a winning team around because mm. they just make players around them better. They link up with midfield runners, create space for others. They can win the ball in the air. So whether you're playing sort of a, a high-level possession approach against lesser teams, they can maybe offer you a, a different way through there. But if you're on the back foot against elite teams, don't ask me to define elite teams, <laughs> um, which England have been in the latter stages of previous tournaments, he can offer maybe a more effective yeah. out ball and release valve. And he's also mobile enough to chase the ball if you don't plonk it straight onto his head or chest. Mm. He's got a good case to to at least argue for inclusion, but there, there are some pretty strong contenders. I think Tammy Abraham's really blossomed and rounded out his game in Italy. Well, on him, though, I was going to ask you about Tammy Abraham because uh, Gareth Southgate was in Italy recently watching watching the games. We, I, I know that he saw Roma lose 4-0 to Udinese, which probably isn't going to help Tammy Abraham's claim, but then it's not necessarily <laughs> his fault. Um, do you think there's a chance that... Because one would think that Tammy Abraham goes to Roma and plays every week, scores lots of goals in Serie A. That's surely going to help his chances of playing for England. Ivan Tony does that in the Premier League every week where like many England fans watch that league as opposed to Serie A. Do you think it hurts Tammy Abraham's chances at all that he's playing? He's doing it in Italy? It certainly shouldn't, but do you think it, it might do? Well, there's an argument as to whether it hurt for Kaya Tamori's chances last yeah. season that he was playing so well in Serie A rather than in the Premier League. I think if you asked Southgate, he would deny that and, and say, look, I am making the effort to go to Italy. Even when I'm not going to Italy, I am watching these guys yeah. and keeping an eye on them. But as long as you have more cases like Tamori not getting in the squad you have the he's, sense and he's of, amazing right well he's just had a career year yeah. you know um, and been the most regular outfield starter on a title team so I think that will be the perception until Southgate act- actively changes it my theory with the way Southgate picks his squads is more that he just favours 
guys who've been in his system for a while yeah. or like been in the orbit of the squad for a while. And he tends to be quite conservative in that sense. Um, so if you've been out of the loop for a little while, it can be quite difficult for you to get back in. Yeah. But Abraham, that could be a counterbalance with him versus Tony because Tony has been completely outside the England stratosphere for yeah. most of his career he's he's a real late bloomer in that sense whereas abraham was capped i think southgate gave him his first england cap i think i think mm. that's right before a lot of people would have so he's clearly a big believer in his talent i think if he sees him scoring a lot of goals in a major european league and if abraham can maybe build on that with european performances as well roma in europe this year mm. yes yeah yes Yes. Yeah, so we say, yes. well, they won the conference league last yeah. year, didn't they? So they they're must be, European. of course, they're they're yeah, yeah, so they must be. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if he can build on that on the European stage as well, and maybe Roma make a good Europa League run, that can help him. Mm. Okay, what do you think, John? I think Tammy Abraham is one of the <clears throat> top 10 strikers in the world, so that's wow. my position on Abraham okay. with Ivan Tony. I think, as, as Liam says, he's on a hot, he's clearly on a hot street right now, and I think that probably affects people's view of. Of what he is good and isn't good at. Are you, are you sort of saying different stratospheres? To to between Abraham yeah. and Tony, yeah, I yeah. think so. No, I, I I rate Ivan Tony, but I think that were he not scoring as many goals, and I know that's that's a, a mm. hypothetical. Most people will say, well, he is. Yeah. But you know, he's scoring at a rate right now that he won't maintain for the rest of the season. I mean, if Calvert Lewin was fit, would this even be a conversation? Uh. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I watched Calvert-Lewin play. Yeah. It feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? I, I, I just remember him in the first half of that first season under Carlo Ancelotti when mm. he was amazing. Mm. Yeah, no, of course. The other thing to add to this as well is that probably the, the biggest issue that Tony would have when you're projecting forward to the World Cup is there just isn't a lot of time for someone who hasn't been in Southgate's thinking up to this point to break into that squad. You've you've got one international break between now and then. Yeah. And if you're not picked for that squad, realistically, it's over. Um, Unless there's like a big injury, I guess, yeah. Is yeah. That, is that this week? Are they picking the squad this week? Yeah, it's international break next week, next week, isn't it? Okay, so we will we will know presumably soon after people are listening to this. Uh, yeah, and even if those matches don't matter massively in and of themselves, they'll be very valuable indicators for where yeah. Southgate's leaning, I think, for the tournament. Okay. Okay. Steve Hankey, anything else? That's good. Great. Well, uh, John McKenzie, thank you. Thank you. Liam Toomey, thanks very much. Pleasure. Please uh, go and read all of Liam's uh, work on The Athletic. Very valuable. Steve Hankey, thank you. You're welcome. And, of course, to producer Don. Thank you, Don. Yes. Take care, everyone. We'll be back next week uh, with more. Hopefully we'll have fixed our technical problem and we can return Seb Stafford-Bloor. Although I've had a lovely week. <laughs> so... <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah, see you later. Bye, 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 bye. Athletic.